the second letter to the Corinthians. We're going to stay in uh, chapter 5, but we're just going to go back a few verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just before we uh, read this, just something to just note. Chapter 4 is really the who, who of the gospel. And it really focuses in on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the, you know, the verses such as that, uh, that glorious verse, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, so the, verse 4 is really bringing these big themes of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what God has done through the Son. And then we get into, uh, get into chapter 5, and it, it, is more, it sort of turns more to a, a what is the good news. What is the good news? And um, I'd just like to read and bring before us this morning these verses, just reading from verse 9. It says this, Wherefore, we labour, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that we may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we judge, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then were all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. May God bless the reading of his word. That verse, as we've already touched on this morning, the love of Christ constrains us. This is really the, the heart of 
what I want us to consider today. Draw your attention to this verse. It is an amazing truth that the Apostle is bringing here to the Corinthian church. This little word, constrain, it's, a, it's an unusual word. It's not used very often in the Scriptures. In fact, it has its root in the idea of a siege of a city. It's a military term, a siege, something that is pressing in on every side. And it gives no way of escape to the inhabitants of that city. That's what a siege is. You can't come in or out. You can't get supplies in and out. You are being besieged. John Bunyan, the great Puritan writer, wrote a book, Holy War, which is not uh, as well known as his Pilgrim's Progress, but it is the allegory of this very truth. The city of Mansoul is under siege, but it's not under siege by enemies. It is under siege by Christ himself, the Prince of Light, who has besieged the city of Mansoul and has come to retake what is rightfully his. Because the usurpers, the devils, the demons, have all made their abode inside the city of Mansoul. And Christ, the Prince of Light in the story, will have none of this and so makes his siege of the city. That is exactly what has happened to the heart of every person who is chosen and called and indeed redeemed. Christ has come and he has besieged our hearts. He has constrained us. But to be more specific, his love has constrained us. His love has besieged us. And he will not rest until every, every defilement, everything that is not of him has been pursued and chased out of that city. He is relentless. He is besieging our soul with his love. Because in his sight, this is an exceedingly precious thing. The soul of his redeemed... It is an exceedingly precious thing and it belongs to him for he bought it with a price. He bought it with his own precious blood. It is what is rightfully his. And so, brothers and sisters, as Christians, we need to realise this truth and we need to rest in this truth that we have a great saviour who is laying a siege to our hearts in spite of the rebellious nature of our hearts in spite of the old man that we struggle with day after day, in spite of all of that, our Lord Jesus comes and with his love he constraineth us. He besieges us, even in our difficulties and trials. Oswald Chambers wrote of the Apostle that Paul was overpowered. He was subdued. He was held as in a vice by the love of Christ. Very few of us really know what it means to be held in the grip of the love of Christ. We tend so often to be controlled simply by our own experiences. The one thing that gripped and held Paul to the exclusion of everything else 
was the love of Christ. It is so true, isn't it? It is so true that often we forget this fact that we have a great and glorious Saviour who, it says, ever liveth to make intercession for us. He is right there in the very presence of the Father. He is able to send the resources through the power of the Holy Spirit to our lives. He knows all our circumstances. He knows all of our strivings and struggles. He knows the guilt and the shame. And he sends out his love. He is a saviour who is standing in heaven with his arms outstretched, ready to come, ready to help, constraining us. You know, consider the Apostle Paul's natural inclination. What I mean by that is his natural personality. What was he, what was he like? What are we told about him? He was a man of action and activity, wasn't he? He was all about doing. You know, you read the account of his conversion and what, was, what he was like before that. But the wonderful thing is, is that the Holy Spirit actually takes... And there's something very beautiful in this, I think, in the life of every believer, that the Holy Spirit takes the person as they are, as they're found, and he changes them in such a way... As so not to diminish them as to who they, who they were or their personalities. No, no, but he begins to beautify this in an amazing way. And like so in the Apostles' example, he here is a natural man and he transformed him into something completely different, but he retained that which he was naturally good at and he made it better. And so this man of action and activity, he is given a new and improved way of life. Indeed, we read, didn't we, that the old things were passed away and behold, all things are made new. And this is the power of Christ in the life of the believer. And we don't live unto ourselves anymore, do we? We, we don't do everything just as we feel fit or as we think we should do. It says there in verse, the end of verse 14 and 15, it actually says it three times that Christ died. Christ died. If one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, and they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. There is an emphasis here on the death of Christ as, as the key. This love of Christ, it, it really should constrain us. In fact, it should be the, the Christian's call to arms, if you like. It should be the banner that we, that we hold up each day and remember that in spite of the trials and the difficulties that we're facing, the circumstances, we say and we remember that the love of Christ constraineth us. He is there for us. He has come alongside. He is one that sticks closer than a brother. He is constraining us. Let's just step back a little bit. In the context of this chapter, what we have here, and we, where we started reading, is Paul has his mind here on eternal things. He's not just telling us this 
because it's going to get us through this life. And yes, we're going to be preserved. Praise God, we will, we will be preserved in him and we will go to be with the Lord and we will be in his presence. Paul has a much bigger scope in his mind when he's writing to these Corinthians. And there's really there's these two keys. The first key is verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord... Sorry, verse 10 and, and 11. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in the body according to that which he hath done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God and trust also are manifest in your consciences. You know, the fear of the Lord... It's something that is really missing from mankind at large today. When Adam first fell, his first response was to actually fear the Lord. He was, he was actually terrified. And him and Eve went and hid themselves from God there in the garden. And that was the right and the natural response. Now... Now, there is no fear of God. There is zero fear of God at large. Mankind has utterly cast off the fear of God. And in fact, this dread that was once there has actually been replaced by hatred. And these two things are really the cause and the root of all sin. You can trace every sin back to these two things. The terror of the Lord and the hatred of God. No, no, now, if you mention this to anybody, you'll receive scoffing. There will be ridicule. These, these things are not truth that people hold in high regard at all. And in fact, for the Christian, one of the greatest blessings that we have in our Christian walk, is that day when God humbled ourselves, when he humbled our rebellious hearts and that we were the ones that were made low. It, was, it is a, a humbling experience, but it is such a blessing. Indeed, we are compelled to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Let's go to Acts chapter 9. And just have a quick look at that conversion experience of the Apostle. So in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, we have Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest, and he desired of him letters to Damascus and to the synagogues, and that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. It's a pretty determined man, isn't it? He went out of his way to go to the high priest. He's very officious. He's very legal. He's getting the job done. He's going to round up the followers of the way, as he called them, and he's going to bring them bound. He's like, it's time to shut this down. Okay, it's getting out of control. 
you guys have, haven't done your jobs, I'm going to go and do it for you. That's pretty much what he's saying to these high priests. So he's on the way. He's a man of action, remember. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined around about him a light from heaven. And he fell to earth and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did he eat nor drink. It's an amazing account, isn't it? It really is. You know, consider what happens here. He Firstly, he's... He is utterly awestruck. He, he falls to the earth. I mean, it doesn't get more humbling than that. You, fall, you, you, you get smashed into the dirt. It says there that he's in verse 6, when the Lord begins to speak, he's trembling and he's astonished. This is, these are the things that he does. But what does, he, what does he say? The first thing he does is acknowledge Christ as Lord. This is amazing. This is the same man who's got letters in his pocket to go and round up the Christians. And yet Christ arrests him, comes into his life, stops him literally in his tracks, lays him low. And then this is his response. There is a great fear and dread upon Saul of Tarsus here in this scene. But look at what happens. The the awestruck position that he finds himself as after he acknowledges who the Lord is, there is an immediate willingness to obey. This is even more amazing. His heart is literally turned in an instant to want to obey the Lord. And then, not only is his willingness to obey there, but he's actually given... The obedience is there too, and he obeys. You see the power of Christ in conversion? And yes, we don't have dramatic conversions like this today. But the Lord still comes to us through his spirit. And the same sequence of events for Paul is the same sequence of events for every Christian. We are laid low. We are awestruck. We say those words of the psalmist, 
against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We realise that our sin is an affront to God. And we repent. And brothers and sisters, this is the, this is the mighty work of the gospel because once we move through this, we see there that Saul arose from the earth. So he doesn't stay in the dirt. He doesn't stay on the ground. He gets up and he goes about what the Lord wants, to, wants him to do. Just note the difference in the very next verses when we're, taught, when we're introduced to the disciple Ananias who, in very different circumstances, but in the same manner, he hears from the Lord. And he says, it says there that, and there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, behold, I am here, Lord. There's no terror, there's no dread, there's no trembling from Ananias. Why? Because he has been reconciled to God. He has been reconciled to God, he hears the voice of the Lord and he obeys. It's a, very, it's a contrasting scripture, isn't it? Where we have this rebel of Saul of Tarsus and then the disciple Ananias straight after it. And the difference and what happens when, when someone is actually reconciled to God. And of course the Lord tells Ananias what he must do and he goes and does it. That obedience is still there. And that's what the wonderful thing is about reconciliation is that we, do know, we no longer dread God. We no longer have that fear of God. We still walk with a, a fear of the Lord. But it's a, it's a different sort of fear. It's not a terror that we sit under his judgment and his wrath, but rather it's a fear of the Lord that we should sin against him because of his amazing goodness to us. That we would not want to break that fellowship that we have. Just go over to Romans now, chapter 5, just to touch on the second point here of these two major points in Corinthians 5. Romans chapter 5. Just verse 8. But God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. You know, we need to be reminded too that grace, the grace of God is not the license to sin. If anything, the grace of God has actually given us the license to perform righteous works. We actually have been given the ability to now live for him through the power of the Spirit. It's the license to say no to sin and to live soberly and godly and to live for him. 
And also, it's not enough these days to just have a profession of faith. Don't misunderstand me when I say that, but we have grown up in a generation of sinners' prayers, altar calls, emotional experiences, whereby even just the simple intellectual assent that Jesus died for our sins and I'll just believe on him and I will be saved. And it's just that it's the, it's the action of the mind. There is no action of the will, there is no action of the heart and we have to be very careful about this particular thing because we can grow up in a church, we can go to a church all of our life And if the Lord Jesus has not dealt with the sin in our life and he has not dealt with the whole man or the whole woman and it's just merely us in our minds saying, yes, these things are true. Yes, I believe them. But have you had that personal relationship with the Lord Jesus? Has he actually arrested you on your path that you are on? Has he come into your life and has he changed your mind, your heart and your will to love him? The love of Christ constraineth us, remember. And this truth should be just so dear to our hearts. And I I say this gently, if this is not your experience, just go and spend time with the Lord. Go and get on your knees, humble yourself under the Lord. Get him to show you what it means to truly repent and put your faith and trust in him. His love is so amazing that it should captivate us. And if you're not enjoying that love, really ask the question, why? Why am I not enjoying the love of Christ? Why don't I seemingly know it? If these things... If you can't relate to these things, just humble yourself and ask the Lord to show you, and he will. You know, this is really the apostle's secret to the victorious life. This is the power of Christ in you. This is the hope of glory that he has placed into the heart of every child of God. That the love of Christ is, constrains us you know the love of christ that he has for his church it's an amazing power and it's you know the love of the great shepherd of the sheep for his flock it's that love that will not let me go as the hymn writer said and i rest my weary soul in thee and just note something else that the tense of this the tense of this this word constrains you know it's not that it it once did it's once constrained it's not that it will do will constrain me in some future time no it's this constrains it's now it's a present help in time of need it's a present power it is here for us to enjoy it is here for us to make use of and to realize that we have this great advocate And brothers and sisters, if we're struggling, if we're weary, if we're held captive, 
by, by Satan's lies and the bondage of sin and the shame and the guilt, then come to the Saviour and remember that His love is what is constraining us. Come unto Him, all that are weary and heavy laden, and He will give you rest. You know, the great uh, 20th century Reformed theologian, Karl Barth, actually lived quite an amazing life. He saw, lived in Switzerland, saw two world wars on his doorstep, um, was really the, uh, one of the key voices against uh, the infiltration of uh, national socialists into the church in Germany and Switzerland during the occupation years of 39 to 45. He, he even wrote, uh, he was the main author, in fact, of a, 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 uh, a statement against the Nazification of the evangelical church in Germany. And then after the war, he was a professor in theology and so he was doing lots of speaking tours and in one particular speaking tour, there was a Q&A. And after the, uh, after the lecture series were over, the students were asked to ask Karl Barth some questions. One of those questions was, what, was the, what is the most profound theological truth you have ever considered? This is the students asking Professor Barth this question. To which he sat there for a short time and then said these words. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Brothers and sisters, this truth is so simple and yet it is the same truth that is going to fix our gaze on the Saviour for all of eternity. Just think about that. It's so, tr- so simple that we teach this little song to the youngest of our children and they can grasp it and they come into the kingdom through this simple truth. And yet it is the same theme that will hold us captivated in eternity when we look into the face of our Saviour. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. This is the love of Christ that constrains us. Robert Murray McShane says this, so simple a truth as the love of Christ to man, continually presented to the heart and mind by the Holy Ghost, will enable any man to live a life of gospel holiness. So simple a truth. So simple a truth. It's amazing to think, isn't it, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that the Apostle says to the Colossian church. He's the one that upholds all things by the word of his power. And there he is, sustaining all things, upholding all things. And yet, at the same time, he is upholding us, his redeemed, by the power of his love. He's upholding us. This the love of God demonstrated to us in the death and resurrection, the marvellous ascension of his son, his glorified son, who now 
reigns in that the power of an endless life. And this same Saviour is now constraining us to live to the praise of his glory, to live with a, a victory over sin, to live as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God. It says, which is our logical service. It's the only thing we can do. It's the only thing we should do, to just live for him and to be constrained by his love. So let us be constrained. Let us be ready to serve others and be constrained by that love of Christ to serve others. Let us be constrained to worship the Lord together. Let us be constrained to live, to to be able to say no to sin, to be able to say no to temptation. Because remembering that the Lord Jesus Christ is there to love us. And so besieging our hearts with his love. Just think about that. The next time you're faced with a struggle, with a, with a trial, just remember, you, you're feeling like you're the one that's, that's being besieged by whatever that is. Remember there is one far greater out there that is actually besieging that trouble, that is actually there fighting for you, that is actually there who has been through it all, who has been through the trials, who has been through the temptations, and come gloriously out the other side. Let's seek to live that holy, acceptable life in sacrifice and worship of him. Shall we just pray? Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for these truths that we've considered this day. We thank you, Lord, most of all for him, the one who loved us and washed us from our sin in his own precious blood. We say again with the psalmist, I love thee, O Lord. Father, make this the battle cry of our heart. Father, make this our banner that we hold up to the world. That we love him, for he first loved us. And may his love constrain us, even as we go into this week, Lord, Help us to rest in this love. Help us to enjoy this love, to enjoy the peace and the presence of the Lord. Father, for there is no better place for us to be. We ask now your blessing upon us as we part, as we gather together and have fellowship in the rear room. Bless our conversations. Bless those who could not join us today as well and strengthen their hearts. Father, give them your blessing and your presence in the way we humbly ask now as we commit our way to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.